Welcome to the second episode of the AMPS podcast. I'm Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And today you find us in the cafeteria of Bristol's Watershed Media Centre. Yeah, a great independent cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once again, we're being picked up on a Tetra mic, along with a couple of COS 11s, to give you a little bit of a sense of the ambience that we're feeling right now. And this is something that we're going to try and make a feature of the AMPS podcast where we will experiment with locations and microphones and microphone recording techniques to, to try and make it more of a sonic experience for you, the listener. Yeah, something interesting for fellow sound people, uh, as well as being a bit of fun for us. Yeah. So this is going to be a second part of um, an interview between Peter and Enos uh, regarding Peter's work on the cave. We'll get into some real detail about choices that needed to be made in post-production, um, things that you'd normally associate with drama like Foley and ADR even, to try and recapture a sense of the reality um, of the world that the characters are experiencing in that moment in Syria. Yeah. So we'll hand over to Enos and Peter again now, and we'll come back to you at the end of the podcast with a few thank yous and a bit of an explanation of what we're hoping to bring to you next. When you think about Foley in a normal film, in a normal fiction film, you do it for various reasons. A, to bring all this detail to the film and also for more technical reasons like, you know, international versioning. Uh, but with documentaries, we often think that, you know, the sound that you're hearing is the sound that you recorded on the day. And quite often people aren't aware that Foley is quite heavily employed in documentaries as well. And and for me, one of the, you know, one of the reasons, for example, with wildlife documentaries is people say, well, it's you're faking the sounds of of, of, for example, animal foley, but actually what you're doing is you're reintroducing the sounds that was not captured yeah. um, on the day due to, especially in the case of nat- nature documentaries, uh, you know, long tele lenses and stuff where a microphone would never have captured the, the authentic sound. So in a way, you are cheating, but you actually are reintroducing the authentic sounds and also you're removing the unwanted sounds from the crew and from the filmmaking process. So I wanted to talk a bit about uh, the use of foley in documentaries, and also specifically in the case of The Cave, where you had to clean up the dialogue so much, like you were talking earlier, you know, cutting around lines, and I imagine, you know, denoising, and and quite often when you denoise stuff, things that aren't dialogue can start feeling a bit like, you know, you're losing detail, and they can start feeling a bit watery and uh, affected by the by some of the processing. So I guess Foley is, is an interesting way of, of reintroducing some of that detail that you get lost by more aggressive cleanup. Exactly. So I like I, talk about that, that yeah. a little bit, if you want to. Yeah, I think uh, generally my experience is on documentaries that because you often remove a lot of noise and uh, and you always have your focus on the words so that the dialogue becomes as clean as possible, this means that pretty much all other sounds uh, suffer or are like are almost taken away like that was on how it was in the cave that there was almost no other sounds than dialogue and and then the foley can really re-establish an intimacy in the film a feel a feeling of being there with the characters because for me um, the voice is just a small element of what we are as human beings I mean, we're so much about physical movement and the sounds of our bodies and and how we sit on a chair and how we touch a table or how um, how we 
we open the door and how our footsteps sound when we walk through a corridor. All these things are such an integral part of our our body language and uh, the and way our character, that, the way yeah, yeah. Defines, our, defines our character or, exactly. or our mind yeah. as well. So, I mean, one of the things that Firas Fayyad talked about very early on about Amani was the sound of her shoes, that they have a, had a very specific sound. She, she used a special kind of shoe um, when walking around the corridors. And for him, that was really the sound of her. Um, so the the... There's so much in the way our body sounds that is really um, a great part of our characters. And when you add that in the documentary, I feel that you you can establish an intimacy about around the character where, I mean, even if the dialogue is quite rough and sounds pretty bad, then if the Foley is there to support it, then suddenly it feels like it sounds like the dialogue becomes better. It feels like the dialogue suddenly right, sounds you, better. You're sort of che- cheating the the audience's mind by by yeah. introducing the elements that yeah. that that usually might have got lost by a, a not so good mic or your exactly. There's music. this interesting psychological phenomenon when you where it feels like you you've the the whole character becomes more. Um, close to you and feels more like a full-bodied character because it's not just a voice saying something it's the the it's a full body moving so so it's quite interesting what foley can do to a film where the the dialogue recordings are so bad then there's all these kind of different tricks for how to work with Foley in the documentary. Um, I worked for many years with Heike Kossi, a Finnish Foley artist who's really brilliant. And um, and I think we... You guys have done quite a few films together yeah, now, haven't you? many, many, many films. Uh, we worked together for, I'm not sure, like, is it almost 10 years or something? And I usually tell my producers and directors that if I'm doing a film, then Heike is doing it with me. Uh, he's uh, those collaborations are great when you have these sort of long long collaborations exactly where, and it, it's, over the years you get to know each other so much in terms of personally but also in terms of the creative workflow and stuff yeah exactly uh, and taste like and unknown language yeah yeah just totally. shorthand in a way yeah mm. and and Heike is really into the Foley telling stories so um, on, on a film like The Cave so how should the footsteps sound? Should it be dirty? or I mean, should there be dirt on the ground? Should it be clean? Should scuffling around? Should it be more precise steps? Uh, I mean, all these things that are really in a big part of the psychological aspects of the characters. So so what we've done now in documentaries is that uh, Heike is often recording with the microphone like a little off so that the the so off, off axis yeah, exactly uh-huh. so that the recordings become uh, more like it i mean it sounds more like a documentary because it sounds uh, i mean it sounds more rough um the interesting as, thing we're talking about of, of how foley is quite often used in the same way now these days on documentary as it is on fiction features but then i guess there's, there's certain quirks about the way sound is used in documentary like this where that can affect the way the foley is recorded or even performed, maybe right. Exactly. So in this case, try to, to match the recording of not ideal dialogue by recording the foley in a similar way. Kind yeah, of, exactly. Um, which is quite so, interesting. 
So Heike is really great at hearing a production sound. I mean, I really try to give him the most updated cleanup of the dialogue so that he he then matches this with the yeah, way he knows that what, he, what he's tried to match. Exactly, way, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, usually I also send him um, both uh, uh, pre-mixed uh, sound. I mean, like if I have done a rough mix, then I can send him temps, uh, temp stems of my effects and sometimes also music. Uh, we also, on some projects, he if the music is there from early on, we also do things where he rhythmically does foley that is, works with the music. So... Um, it's it's all these things that we've been exploring from for many years now, and how to really use Foley as something that is an integrated part of the sound design, and it's not just a sound you put in there to to have a practical effect. It's a sound that is there because it tells a story. So we're we're really trying to um, experiment with how to use. Um, uh, Foley. Uh, we've also started pl- playing around with um, Heike is recording with um, a, um, contact microphone. He also made a stethoscope microphone. Um, so recording Foley in more subjective ways. Um, we've we've been playing around with that and I mean he really used that a lot in at Astra which he did the foley for uh, so it's it's been interesting to develop these different things with him and a lot of those techniques we now also used in the cave um, for some of the more subjective sequences we 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 play around with him like recording foley that is more yeah stuff. yeah exactly so I saw something recently where there, there was a foley artist who was recording uh, Foley, but he had created like a, a resonant chamber kind of thing with, I think, a sort of a metal, hollow metal, like sort of um, barrels or stuff like that. They were using that just as a place to put your mic in. Um, so the Foley from nearby was being recorded through sort of the resonance of this metal barrel. Even though the, the mic was a normal mic, they were using this sort of like almost a resonator to give it a that sort of metallic edge, which I thought was quite an interesting, interesting way of, of uh, using objects like this with specific materials that will kind of give a, an edge to the sound even long before you even get to mixing the foley. Yeah. Heike has, uh, I think, three different rooms at his studio with different acoustics. So we also, I mean, for example, he has a room that's that almost has this kind of like hallway big reverberation, which we used for uh, in the cave for some background steps so that just to make them feel like they're actually in the in in the hallway instead of kind of adding all these things later on with reverb then actually making this part of the original recording i think sometimes that can make it feel just more natural than instead of adding all these reverbs afterwards um and also in a way it's in mixing you can do a lot of you can do a lot of things in mixing to create almost anything you want right you can record close close foley and put reverb on it and eq and stuff but a it takes a lot longer to do and B, I always find this, it's like, especially for like distant real acoustic spaces and, and slightly more distant perspectives, it's almost impossible to get exactly the right the right feel. Um, so I, I used to work, even personally on my own projects, used to work a lot more with like closed mic, clean Foley. But actually now, these days I try and, if possible, I, I try and use 
as many authentic recordings of real spaces. So if you know it's going to be in a hallway environment, you know you're going to want to add that reverb. So why not just find a recording that matches that space as opposed to just, you know, trying to f make it work in the mix in a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think with Foley, it's, it's a similar thing. You know, people sometimes go out and record away from the Foley stage in, in real spaces and do some wild, wild Foley. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great tricks to kind of make Foley seem much more organic um, and really make it gel with the production sound. And um, yeah, so so yesterday I was reading an um, article about the 1917 film uh, sound, um, and there's obviously fo Foley being done in a Foley stage for that. But the, uh, the supervisor had been talking about going out and recording uh, in the actual sets where they were recording. Uh, Doing the doing the films and recording lots of wild tracks of footsteps and dropping certain weapons and uh, kind of foley esque type stuff, which you, they could then cut, kind of as sound effects, but um, but you know things that would be sort of covered by foley usually. Yeah. And then they would layer both things and be able to find the best of both worlds in a way. Yeah, exactly. There's all these tricks which just make the whole things make the whole thing come alive much more. Um, and then for for something like the cave, um. I mean, usually in a documentary, because there's not a budget for doing full foley for the whole film, I do like spottings for for Heike where I'm kind of like, okay, I want that and that and that and that, uh, and then. So you pick your moments um, in a way. Exactly, yeah. Where where I need the foley because in a feature film you would have full foley because you need to do an M and E afterwards, but in in a documentary you don't need to do that. So. Um, for those who don't know what an M&E is, which I guess most AMPS members will know, but for those who don't know, M&E is a music and effects track. So if you're doing a fiction feature, once the film's been done uh, and a foreign country wants to do a dubbed version of it, obviously once you remove the production sound and dialogue, um, if you remove things like footsteps with it, then they need to be reintroduced. So on a fictional film, all the foley, all the footsteps, cloths and props are uh, done as part of foley so that you can have a purely fully fit fitted and filled um, uh, track once the dialogue is removed. Exactly. Um, but in documentaries, obviously, you don't dub uh, in the same way as you don't ADR. Uh, you don't use ADR in documentaries generally. You don't dub into foreign version either. So, um, so I guess that, in that sense, you can be selective as to what sections you need to more support from Foley. Yeah. Um, and so on, right? But then on the cave, the sound, the production sound was so bad that we pretty much needed full Foley anyways. I mean, it's not totally full Foley, but it's, I mean, there's Foley playing in every scene. And uh, and we really needed that to be able to create this kind of intimacy with the characters and just the feeling of being there. Um, um, but what I then sometimes do is that I... I mean, in the film, there's a lot of moments where you have a lot of characters in the frame, and then we only do Foley for a couple of specific characters. Like, you see one of the nurses going through a hallway, and then we only do steps for the nurse and not for the people around. Um, or maybe someone is standing in the corner with a finger touching a door, and then we hear only that sound and not the other. So we use the foley as to focus in a way to focus the eye. It's interesting yep. how, I mean, when you hear a sound, then it guides the eye to where to look, and then and we we do that a lot in the cave to kind of isolate uh, the the main characters and make you feel their emotional kind of vacuum, uh, and then 
bringing the sounds in from them only and not having the the different characters around them make sounds it's it's that, that was something we did several places in the film and it 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 worked quite strongly and it kind of has this effect of you really being there together with the character but also experiencing how lost and how um how uh, lonesome they feel in this madness that they're surrounded by. I really like the um, the term sonic depth of field. When you're filming with cameras or when you're taking photography, um, you, you talk about things like shallow depth of field or, you know, uh, where you can you can really blur out the background and focus on the, on the foreground. So I, I love using this similar mentality with sound and using sort of shallow sonic depth of field. And that sort of applies to what you were saying, where you could pinpoint a certain Foley element and pull that out from the rest of the room. Exactly. And that can really be a be a guiding factor to the audience as to what to focus on, um, and, and sort of sometimes focus on interesting things that you wouldn't maybe visually be focusing on if you were purely following the visuals. You know, yeah, it's, it's I think it's a kind of a, a cool. I love the romanticism of this sonic depth of field yeah. uh, use in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's super interesting because it's quite amazing how how the sound just means that you look in a specific place in the in the frame, uh, and it's. It totally kind of uh, guides the eye to where to look in the image, and um, it's a it's it's a very strong way of I feel like creating a, a connection to a character. Yeah, and I think you know in this case we were talking about how you can highlight one specific character in a scene um, and pull them out from the from the crowd by focusing on them. But sometimes if you, if you push this to an extreme, you um, um, this kind of leads, leads me to the next point I wanted to talk about, which is. Um, there's a sequence in the film where um, uh, I think it's Amani who herself or one of the nurses is sat down uh, on her own and you start going to these sort of sonic flashbacks. The saturation of, of the pressure is so heavy and she's, is it, I think it's Amani, right? Uh, it's it's actually Samaha, the, the nurse. Okay, one yeah, of the nurses, yeah. 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 She yeah. sat down and she has her head in her hands and she's crying or she's completely like overthrown by the emotions and overpowered by the madness of it all. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's one of the main moments in the film where you kind of go sonically into a whole different space. Um, exactly. Quite, it, quite cinematically. It's, yeah. It's very interesting that Firas, I mean, he uh, he's thinking so much about sound that he also just opens up for doing things like this where you're just there with a character who's like looking around and I mean just sitting down and not doing anything but then just letting the sound tell her inner story that was really interesting and very emotional and then uh, Firas had got hold of these radio recordings from the hospital where they can hear if there's a bombing outside or what's going on outside so we got hold of these recordings and I then used those sounds for creating like a collage of different elements of alarms and, and voices, but then also playing around with textures and being very musical about it. There's no music in that sequence that we're talking about. It's only sound. So it's very bold and, and brave, I think, of Firas to kind of have a scene like that in a documentary where it's just about like almost like a sonic recollection of what she is experiencing. It feels like you're there with her and experiencing what she's experiencing inside her head. But I used then these different radio recordings put together with, I mean, played around with those and made those into textures. I really love 
having some specific sonic elements and then creating textures of these uh, nowadays I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, slapper uh, using weird delays in different ways so I think a lot of those textures were made up from from that just building different textures from these radio recordings so that it's it's both like realistic recordings realistic sounds from the environment but then they're built upon and reshaped in with through sound design and and i really love that kind of approach to sound because for me that takes you take a realistic sound and then you filter it through the emotions of the character i think also in the case of this specific sequence in the film it sort of expands the frame massively because visually all you need is the shot of this person or all you have maybe is the shot of this person who's sat there with their head in their hands and, and really feeling overpowered by anything. But visually with without any sound, you can't just you know have that shot going on forever. But in a way, once the sound starts doing what you did with it, you justify just having this one shot almost there for quite long. The sound is telling her story. It was also one of the places where we really used uh, the Atmos system actually to kind of create this feeling that the sounds are in her head but it's also like surrounding her like it's really enveloping and Lars Ginsel did a great job on taking the different sounds I made and them panning them around the room but without it being flashy that's it's really uh, I love Atmos because it's uh, I mean for many things but one of the things is the the way that it feels very natural, the way that it envelops the, the audience in sound, whereas the old school kind of 5-1 or 7-1, because of the the low cut in the, in the surrounds, it, it's just not, it, 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 there's just not the same clarity and it feels a little bit more like, um, like, uh, a reproduction of sound in a way and 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 a reproduction of sound that's not one to one but more like half of what it once was uh, whereas in in atmos it feels so completely natural that you can have a scene like this which is just one person sitting in a room and then sounds around her but the way that if you use the space in a very tasteful way then it really the the sound envelops you in a very natural way, even though it is completely unnatural that those sounds are there, then because the, the it, because of the clarity and because of the the kind of spatial information of the soundscape, then Atmos really makes that things like that shine. It's more true to how we hear things in real life, exactly. Guess, than, yeah, than, yeah. Than some of the, the older formats, yeah. as such. I want to talk about this is the so the, brings me to the last um, or the main the last main sort of topic that I want to talk about, which is we, we've spoken about the dialogue editing, foley effects, and design. Um, but now I just wanted to discuss a bit about the mixing side of things, and this is a perfect time to do so because you just mentioned Dolby Atmos, which the film was mixed in. Um, which I guess for a lot of films that were mixed in Dolby Atmos were big action films where Yes, they were great, and I could see what Atmos was doing, but it kind of just felt there's more space to put lots of big sounds. I didn't see the use of it. But then there was one film that I watched, which coincidentally was one that you did, uh, called The Idealist. Uh, and I remember watching that um, with you, I think, actually, at Dolby in, in Soho Square yeah. here in London. Um, and that was the first time I watched a film where I, I came out of it thinking, wow, okay, there's there's so much storytelling potential in the, the format itself, if it's used in a sort of clever and, and subtle way, as opposed to just throwing a bunch of sounds into more speakers kind of thing. Um, and in, in The Idealist, there was a lot of moments where the, the lead character was sort of reacting 
in a way, to sounds that were being heard off, sort of off screen in a way in the film. And this was adding to his paranoia of being observed and, and sort of spied upon and, you know, um, uh, and it made sense in the context of that story. Um, so I just wanted to bring this up because it was your it was a film that you had done as well, which is, for me, the only film I had seen until then that sort of justified uh, Dolby Amos as a format uh, beyond just being a technical sort of, hey, let's be more surroundy, you know? <laughs> I'm very. I think in this film, in yeah. the cave, you've done again a similar job because of the nature of the story, where everything you're hearing is stuff that you're not necessarily seeing. A lot of the, the sound you're hearing is stuff you're not seeing on the picture. So in that sense, the Atmos format, I guess, is being used in a much more storytellingly strong uh, form, in a way. Yeah, I mean, as I uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, then Ferraz, uh, the director, he from the very first meeting we had, he was saying this has to be in Dolby Atmos because he wanted to really have this feeling of being in the cave and hearing the wall above you. And because of Atmos having speakers in the ceiling, then it made perfect sense to kind of use that as the as the sounds. The sound system for this film because it it made it possible for for the audience to experience the wall coming from above you. For me, um, I'm so happy to hear what I mean your experience with the idealist uh, in us because uh, it's really something that Lars and I have tried to develop through the years. Lars Ginsel and I uh, through our collaboration. It's like how to use Dolby Atmos as really like. Uh, uh, a storytelling tool like this is something that expands on the story and um, heightens the uh, the emotions of the characters. I mean, gives even more depth of field, as you mentioned earlier, like depth of field to the sound. And um, I think for the cave, Atmos really worked brilliantly because it opened up the soundscape and made the the whole experience more enveloping exactly as Ferraz wanted. What we do on on a on a more like a basic work setup level is that um, I don't have Atmos in my own studio. Actually, I have seven point one. So what I do is that I I off I work a lot with layering of sounds. I've always done that, and now even more like really trying to have a lot of different elements for the a lot of different textural elements also for the ambiences and so on so uh, then when i bring my 7.1 setup to the stage and Lars then expands with objects and so on then it's very easy to pull things into the objects and make them um, fill up the room um what we do now, and even, I mean, we also did that on, on the cave, is that we, uh, just like what you do on, on, on often, I, I think what's done on US feature films is that, and probably on UK features as well, is that you you've, you split the, the whole session up into groups, the effects groups, different groups, so that it's easy to kind of see, okay, what is what? And what we did on the cave was then that we kind of started up in the in the upper groups that it was more like the basic ambiences and then the basic effects in the groups after that. And then the things became more and more musical. So when the further down you went into the session, the more abstract the elements became. Right. And it meant that that when mixing then 
we could constantly, it was easy to kind of say, okay, let's try and push this part of the scene into a more abstract territory. And then, okay, then just go down into the session and bring those elements up a bit. Uh, I mean, it's often in the film, there's, there's kind of a development through just single scenes where you go from being in a more realistic environment in the beginning, and then it changes into a more textual environment through just one scene. Uh, then there's scenes where the, it's it's very abstract, and then there's a lot of scenes where it's, of course, primarily realism, but then with small glimpses of these more abstract elements. But, but grouping it this way meant that as kind of getting an overview for Lars, it's, it makes it much easier, but it's also a way of being able to kind of... Um, structure this the the abstract element of the sound design in a in a way into the mix and so that we easily can could expand on something becoming more subjective or less subjective uh, there's a scene uh, in the film one of the operation sequences where um, uh, there's this doctor in the film called dr salim who always listens to music while he's operating and uh, uh, while he's doing his surgery, and then you you uh, so he plays classical music usually just from an iPhone, um, but and that fills up the room. And as he says, he's he hasn't got any uh, anesthesia but, or anesthetics, but he has music. <laughs> uh, so th there's music playing through those scenes, and then there's there's a couple of scenes where they start out doing an operation without music playing. And Ferraz was like, okay, in, when there's not music playing, those operations should be more evil and dark. And I mean, you should kind of get how harsh this can be. And then when music comes in, then it becomes, the, the sounds become less dark and more, well, not light, but at least, at least um, more round or more, more as if you're anesthetized by the music in a way exactly yeah yeah totally you don't have physical anesthesia but music can make it a bit more easy to carry in a way those moments yeah exactly so so and then often then having sounds in the beginning being more more uh, uh, rough and 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 uh, dissonant and then when the music comes in i i tried cutting the sounds the beeps and the machinery and also some of the foley cutting that so it fits with the rhythm of the classical piece that comes in um so so there's kind of a movement from going from something that's dark and subjective into something that is more musical and those things were pr pretty easy to achieve or even though well maybe not easy but at least they were built uh, up in the session so that you could kind of as for Lars as the mixer, then it was, you, you could kind of go to the different layers pretty quickly. You, you said that in your studio, you're not working within Dolby Atmos. Does that mean that the um, you're working essentially within a 7.1 layout and then only in the final mix, you're sort of creating the object tracks and pulling things down? Yeah, exactly. Onto that? Is that how you're working? Yeah. Uh, so I work from a 7.1 session, but then I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really thinking about, okay, what, what, what layers can be played around with later on. I mean, so that I I try to think of like in each individual scene, is there something here that we 
could use for enhancing the the three-dimensional feeling of the sound in the scene so so constantly having different elements and different layers that that will then be easy to kind of switch into an object mode and then expand into the sound field well, one of the other things as well like this documentary specifically is quite the camera quite often is, is running around and, and panning around the room in a way so in a way from a pov perspective um that often could be treated as a if you treated it realistically things are sort of panning around with the camera there's a few sequences where i felt like you had done some kind of movement you're being a bit more disorientating with you're sort of moving with the camera more that's completely um, right i mean we do a lot of panning i i actually do a lot of panning in in ambiences uh, just generally um but in this film there's also several places where where the camera is moving and we have things like moving into another room or sounds like uh, you hear sounds from another room and then you go into the room and the panning is changing. But I also do that in just like standard scenes where you're in a room and you're hearing something off. And then, for example, the, one of these uh, stretches with reels going through the hallway, maybe panning that sound. Or, I mean, also sometimes just in, in when you have... Um, like an over shoulder shot from two different sides because there were there were actually three photographers on this film so in some scenes they actually had two cameras shooting at once so they were able to there's some of the dialogue scenes that are actually shot with two cameras so that they could do kind of go back and forth uh, like like almost like in a fiction film but then i really like to have some elements like spread out so that there's some elements playing in the left side and some playing in the le in the right side and then if when you change perspective to the other side then i shift those around so that they it's it's then the things from the left go into the right but then i also have some elements that are um playing i mean with the same pen all the time so so i just like this kind of feeling where if the camera changes i i always feel like the sound should change a little bit as well so uh, i i do quite a lot of panning in ambiences and i mean i do a lot of that panning already during the editing and then Lars and later on in this film, Tim Nielsen from Skywalker Sound expanded on that. So there's the, so, I mean, for me, dynamics are incredibly important in film, I feel. And in this film, there's quite a lot of moments going from something that's very loud into something that's very quiet. But you can also create dynamics by, by, by working like spatial dynamics, like working with how your pan sounds and how right. how how something can be almost mono and then be stereo and then go out into the surrounds, and I mean that can create an, a wonderful dynamic as well. From mono to very immersive, and also from very static to very violently moving. You know, you can go from disorientating to uh, more stable just through the use of of panning or the amount of panning. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, uh, and, and dyna dynamics even within the speed of, of violence in the panning versus none at all, or yeah. you know, mono to more channels, I guess. Yeah. Those dynamics are almost equally interesting as you know, volume dynamics, in a way. There's a, there's a, I mean, the, one of the, f the, the big final kind of 
uh, attack scene, it's a chemical attack scene that's just really horrendous and, and scary. And during that whole sequence, there's, or at least uh, starting off kind of halfway, there's a sound of a respirator, um, like a breathing machine, um, kind of playing throughout that is rhythmically built in together with the music of composer Matthew Herbert. Uh, so it fits together, but that sound also goes from being up on the screen and being into the atmos surrounds and then going back and and moving a bit around. Um, and so so it's also, I mean, the panning thing is also something we do for some of the abstract sounds. Um, so I think that just like generally the there's a lot of panning in this film and um, and also with Foley, actually, like like having Foley panning around. Um, because of how the production sound was in this film, we couldn't really pan dialogue. It was uh, there's a couple of places where we do it, but mostly we had to kind of have the dialogue play in the center because there's all this noise in the center. So it was really hard to kind of make too much of a panning. Um, but but. Um, but there's there's lots of other moments where where I mean dialogue free scenes or stuff like that where where the foley could be panned around as well. Yeah, I guess with the dialogue, if you if you have lots of like dirt in it, you know, PFX type stuff, then it, it limits your your options to moving it around, right? Yeah, exactly. Because then really you, then you can really hear when you start panning it. Um, yeah, it carries carries much more energy with it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, you you mentioned that the final phase of the mixing was done at Skywalker in in California, right? Yeah, with Tim Nielsen. Yeah, we originally planned to mix at Skywalker, and we're planning on going all of us together over there. But then there was a lot of issues with Ferraz, uh, as he's a Syrian filmmaker. The he couldn't get a visa for coming into the U.S. So there was lots of problems with that. So we ended up kind of saying, okay, let's mix the film in Denmark. Then uh, Lars started out doing a dialogue premix in Berlin for a week, I think. And then he moved up here and then we were mixing here for two weeks. But then during this late in the process, then suddenly Ferraz actually got a, a visa for, for the US. So then the whole idea of mixing at Skywalker was suddenly... a embraced and reopened and um, Ferraz really wanted to mix at the ranch uh, for the final mix so then uh, Tim got on board again and but at that point it had I mean the whole process had been so long and um, that Lars couldn't um, go uh, with us to the US and uh, so it ended up being me going over there and then uh, we had been mixing in Atmos on here in Denmark, so then the whole mix was um, uh, sent over to Skywalker, where they uh, spent a couple of days and just setting everything up properly. And then uh, Tim went through the film a few times, uh, a couple of times, just going through. I mean, getting a relationship to the film. And then I came over, and then we had a little more than a week to kind of finish everything off, where we had long, long, long days. And the but the bizarre thing was that in the end, um, Firas, it turned out that his visa had only. I mean, he could only get into the U.S. once. 
So it was decided that they wanted to keep that entry for for the actual premiere and the promotion of the film. So then we set up a stage in Denmark where he could listen to the 7.1 mix that we were doing in, at Skywalker. Talk about a global global sort of a <laughs> yeah. project process. Yeah, it was crazy. But it meant that in the end, I think we mixed for more than four weeks on the film, which is quite unheard of for a documentary. Especially in documentary, uh, yeah. yeah. Now, it's great to see that sound is, on a project like this was given so much time and importance sound in general has often historically been always sort of seen as a bit of a side yeah almost like side, an afterthought or something yeah, yeah yeah and i think it's changing the scene is changing and people are becoming more aware of sound and its role beyond just fixing something technical is there now much more awareness of of its creative role and emotional role so it's great to see that kind of carry on into documentaries you know, large doc- large documentaries like like uh, the cave yeah and then i mean this is also really about a director with a very strong vision and Firas was so insistent on sound being a very very important part of this film that he also really made sure that the production like really i mean understood this and and uh, made room for this so it was really wonderful to feel this kind of support from the director and then feel that support from the production as well um, so making this possible absolutely and uh, i've seen that the um, the film's been shortlisted for the oscars now as well right yeah we're hoping for the best i mean it's really um, it's this film is for me it's also so incredibly important because it it gives the syrian people a voice i mean that and you see this terrible situation that they're in and the the media generally don't show much of this and i feel that i mean it's such a terrible situation uh, in that sense i'm very proud to be part of this film because it has this it gives you an insight into what's going on in the world and uh, and it's also a situation that touches us all because of the whole refugee situation and so on so i'm very happy that that national geographic is promoting the film this way and making sure that it comes out in so many territories and also that it i mean that you can experience it in the cinema in so many places in the world and that's really amazing do you know about the release where it will be available I to think, watch? I uh, think, I mean, because National Geographic is is also has their own streaming services. So whenever the the film has been playing in in cinemas and f- at festivals, then at some point it'll come out during next year. I'm not exactly sure when. We're hoping for that our Atmos mix can get a a life online and through streaming. So anyone here in the UK or in Europe who wants to uh, get a copy of the film, uh, I've seen that Dogwoof are um, distributing the film so you can order a copy of the film online or probably stream it on a few platforms as well. Um, What's next for you, Peter? I just actually finished the new film by the director who did The Idealist. The film is called The Good Traitor, Our Man in America, and we also did that in Atmos, and uh, we really experimented a lot with sound as we started out doing the first sound collages for the film before the script was written so sounds were made in i mean before the script so they were written into the script and so there's a lot of a lot of great thoughts about sound put into that film so uh, that will come out during next year for me i mean that's that's really about that's so important it's the it's these collaborations so a lot of the people i work with are people i worked with before uh, I mean, Christina, uh, we've we've known each other, worked together for 
18 years now. We've done a lot of both documentaries and features and short films together. So it's this amazing ongoing creative collaboration. And it's this thing about sound that it can be difficult to talk about. And so that when you really find someone where you where you're totally in sync and you have a perfect communication about it, it's really I feel like clinging onto that and I mean having that kind of creative collaboration is so amazing. Peter, thank you so much for spending uh, this time with us. Thank you so and much. And I uh, wish you all the best in this new year and look forward to hearing more projects from you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Peter and Enos, for um, that great talk, both parts of it. It's just been fantastic to listen to and be a part of. And thanks to all of you as well for listening so far. We really appreciate uh, the engagement we've had with this podcast. Yeah. Now, due to the nature of the production of The Cave, Enos and Peter's discussion was really a study of the options in post-production setting. But we don't intend for this podcast to, to focus only on post-production. We, we're going to be bringing you content on production, location recordings, uh, sign for games, radio, uh, potentially sign for immersive content. Um, so if anyone has any ideas for for future content or wants to collaborate in any way, then please feel free to get in touch. Yeah, you can reach us uh, via our email at ampspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter uh, at ampspodcast as well. And uh, this podcast now is available in more and more places. Um, we're now on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, uh, just to name a few. Um, so you can hear us on SoundCloud. If you're an AMPS member, you can hear us via the website uh, or using any third-party app that you like to use. Yeah, and for anyone who's interested in, in joining AMPS, membership is open to those working in sound for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. Uh, so for more information about AMPS and how you can become a member, you can visit amps.net. And also we'd like to extend our gratitude to my friend John Paul Ryden, who has worked with us on providing the logo design for the podcast, and we're very grateful to him for his help. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you.